Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And if he will then worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to read your word, to listen to it, to ponder it, and to live it. May we turn to you in our times of temptation, in our times of weakness, as we see what Christ did for us and let an example for us to share. And we turn to you for our strength and we look to scripture for our understanding and our deliverance. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is not only the perfect Adam, also our brother and had lived this perfect life as an example and a testimony and to glorify you. May we do the same, and this we pray in your son's name, amen. <clears throat> Satan is very real. Uh, the scriptures speak to him as uh, being the God of this world. Uh, Jesus himself speaks of him as being the ruler of the world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we read that Satan is called the evil one. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he is referred to as the prince of the power of the air who works in the children of disobedience. So Satan is very real. He's not just some uh, mythical uh, figure, uh, but a very real person. And he is powerful. He's God's greatest enemy. Scriptures refer to him as a roaring lion, a leviathan. Revelation, he's called the dragon. Jesus calls him the strong man. But what is more, he's real, he's powerful, and we must do battle with him. And we are naive if we think uh, that we can win that battle against him in our own strength. And praise the Lord, we don't have to do battle with him in our own strength. As we talked about last week, looking at Luke chapter 4, Jesus is our Savior from sin and temptation. Uh, Jesus is our ultimate champion. 
uh, who went toe-to-toe with Satan and defeated him. Uh, Satan, again, is powerful. He's real. Uh, he seeks to wage war against us. He's, he has a kingdom over which he rules. That, that kingdom is very organized. Uh, his great concern is to destroy the work of God and the people of God. But again, in our text, Jesus, the last Adam, the second Adam, the perfect Adam, he confronted Satan, who's been opposing God since the beginning of time or thereabouts, and he overcame him. He destroyed him who would seek to destroy us. Or at the very least, he sets the groundwork for Satan's destruction on the cross. As we talked about last week, in these 40 days of temptation, Satan throws everything he has. Uh, He growls, he roars, he shows his claws, he's fierce. But Jesus was greater. Jesus went toe-to-toe, head-to-head, face-to-face, and overcame him, showing that he is the obedient son, the son with unswerving allegiance to the father, the son who uh, secedes where previous sons have failed. And in doing so, he sets the groundwork for the cross, where Jesus will crush the head of the serpent in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ, we have the victory. In Christ, uh, we uh, have it through him and the great war that he fought for us. But that doesn't mean that the war is over. Satan is defeated. Yes, his doom is sure, absolutely. But he's looking to take down as many as he can with him. Again, he's that enemy roaming around like a lion seeking to devour. Paul describes that thorn in the flesh that he gets as a messenger from Satan, sent to torment him. And James warns us we should resist the devil. Such warnings are very, very abundant in Scripture because spiritual warfare is real. Now, it seems when spiritual warfare comes up, uh, in, some, in some conversations, in some churches, we're, we're prone to uh, two different kinds of extremes. One is uh, we're prone to blame Satan for everything. And the other one is we're prone to think life is just peaceful and, and there's, there's no war going on. But read Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, the whole Christian life is described as battle, as war. So again, some people know that spiritual warfare is real and they see Satan behind every flat tire or every lost set of keys or, or anything like that, maybe a bout of the flu. I just want to say that that's, that's not a healthy perspective and that's giving Satan way more credit than he deserves. And by the way, Satan loves attention. Don't give him more than he needs. And sometimes we're prone to do that. But I think, honestly, if we're, if we're thinking through it, that we're more prone uh, to be ignorant of his schemes. We're more prone to not give him enough credit. We're, we're more prone to forget about his schemes and his tactics and the spiritual warfare that is going on around us. And we live as if we're in a time of peace, and we're not. Again, we're in a time of war. Not against one another, but against Satan and his principalities, and his powers. So Satan is real. He's powerful. We're at war with him. Christ has won the victory. So in him we are victorious. The the war is not over. The battle continues. 
What I want to do this morning is, is kind of unfold a little bit as we make our way through Luke 4, uh, how Satan tends to work when he tempts us, his tactics, his strategies, his schemes in the midst of temptation. And the first one that we will see this morning uh, comes from verses 2 through 4, and it says, Satan seeks to cast doubt on God's goodness. Look at verse, verse 2 again. It says, Jesus For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So again, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He has eaten nothing through these 40 days. It's it's nearly seven weeks. He's hungry. Six weeks, I should say. Nearly six weeks, he's hungry, he's, he's starving. So Satan strikes at that most opportune moment. He's hungry, and he tempts him, if you are the Son of God, which, by the way, can be misleading of a translation. In the Greek, it's, since you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, you've got to remember the context And flash back or look back real quick at Luke chapter 3, verse 22. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is baptized. And once he's baptized, the sky is split, the Spirit comes down, and the Father proclaims his love. The Father says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Translated, God the Father is saying to Jesus, I love you and all my affection is for you. I delight in you, I take pleasure in you. So those are the words echoing in the the ears and the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes to battle uh, in the wilderness for 40 days into uh, this place of testing and trials and loneliness and of no eating. And so here comes Satan, right, suggesting there must be something wrong with the Father's love because is that any way to, to treat your son who you love? right? You just proclaimed, I love you, my affection is for you, you're my beloved son, I delight in you, but now you're 40 days alone and hungry. It's, it's similar to the same temptation he used uh, to Eve, basically saying to her, look, God's holding out on you. Why can't you eat from every tree in the garden? If, if God really loved you, wouldn't he share everything with you? That's the temptation in the Garden of Eden. That's the same temptation he's throwing at Christ here. He's saying to Jesus, is this any way for the Father to be treating his Son? Is this how the Father shows his love to his children? Letting you go hungry? You see what he's doing. He's casting doubt on the goodness of God. He's casting doubt on the the trustworthiness of the Father. He's suggesting that God has abandoned him, and so Jesus should just, just take matters into his own hands. Again, is this what God's love looks like? You're the Son of God, and and you're hungry? How does that make sense? So how about you just just, just take care of yourself? There's there's some stones. Turn, Turn that into some bread. Don't wait on God. Then you won't be tortured by hunger any longer. So you see, that's the temptation. That God doesn't care. 
Don't trust God. Take things in your own hands. In response, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's actually a quote of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And if you want to turn there quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, just to get the full verse, because Jesus does a partial quote of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In that verse, again, just to see the whole context, uh, it says this. This is Moses speaking to the Israelite nation, the Israelite people. It says, he, that's God, God humbled you, and the you is Israel. So God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So again, Moses is reminding Israel in that time of, of, of temptation themselves in the wilderness and how the Lord was actually testing them and they were wandering and, and he would daily provide this manna and if God hadn't done that, the nation of Israel would have perished. Why did God send this manna? It tells us right in verse 3, right? It says, God sent the manna, quotes, that God might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Israel, Israel had manna by God's word. That's the key point there. Israel survives not because of the manna. Israel survives because of God's word. Because God gives by his word the manna. That's the point there. Israel lives not by the manna. They live by the word of God. So with Jesus. He knew the plans the Father had for him. Jesus knew the Father by the Spirit had, had led him into the wilderness, and he, he knew that the Father would not let him down, would not let him perish in the wilderness. So Jesus refuses to take things into his own hands, and he insists that he's going to choose the Father and trust the Father to meet his needs in his own time and his own way. Essentially, he's saying this, Look, Satan, I'm not going to take things into my own hands and turn these stones into bread because I don't need bread as much as I need God's Word. Jesus is saying, I live by the word of God. You, you, Satan, you want me to doubt my father, but I trust the word of God. The word of God is my sustenance. The father said, I am his son, and I am beloved, and he delights in me, and he has a mission for me to seek and to save the law, so I'm going to live by faith in God's word. And that's going to be my food. That's going to be my sustenance. That's going to be my strength. And that's more important to me than turning those stones into bread even though I'm ravenously hungry, 40 days of not eating. That's powerful. Uh, Warren Wearsby, in his, his commentary on this verse, he says it this way, it is better to be hungry in the will of God than satisfied out of the will of God. Man, that's powerful. Let me say it again. It is better to be hungry in the will of God than satisfied out of the will of God. Do you believe that this morning? 
It reminded me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They follow the one true Lord, and they don't bow down and worship. Nebuchadnezzar is just super happy about that, right? He's furious. He's indignant. And he brings them before him and inquires, why are you not bowing down and worshiping? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, reply by saying, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar threatened, if you're not going to bow down and worship, I'm going to throw you in that fiery furnace. And their response to that is to say, the Lord can deliver us from that. But if he doesn't, you know what? He's still God. We're not going to bow down and worship you. God's still God. God's still good. They trust God. Basically, they're saying, we would rather die than defy God. That's powerful. That's powerful. They would rather die in obedience to the will of God than to defy God and be out of his will. Better to die than refuse God. Better to die in the will of God than live outside the will of God. It's a powerful thing to think about. And again, I want to ask you, do you believe that? And can, can you say that this morning? Can you say it's, it's better to be hungry in the will of God than satisfied out of the will of God? It's better to defy God or better to not defy God and die, right? Better to defy sin and live, even if that means I die. It's powerful. There's ways we can apply that more pointedly. You can say it this way. It's better to forgive someone in the will of God than it is to hang on to bitterness and be out of the will of God. It's better to speak the truth in love with your neighbor and be in the will of God than to let your neighbor keep on in sin and destroy their lives and be out of the will of God. How about this one? It's better to be sexually abstinent and be in the will of God than uh, to have premarital sex outside the will of God. Not too many believe that anymore, huh? It's better to make every effort to restore my marriage and be in God's will than to just give up and divorce my spouse for whatever reason and be out of God's will. It's better to throw your computer away or your smartphone away or whatever it is that causes you to stumble into pornography or whatever it is that causes you to waste time and be lazy it's better to throw that away and be in God's will than be out of God's will. It's better to honor and obey my parents and be in God's will than to disobey them. It's better to please God and obey God and maybe lose my friend than disobey God and keep my friend but be out of the will of God. See, there's, and there's a lot of ways you can apply that, isn't there? It is better to live by God's word than to defy it. And as, as you think about that, as I did some thinking about that, that whole thought about it's better to be in God's will than out of it and, and how God's will can be harder sometimes than being uh, out of God's will, uh, at the heart of those temptations is trusting God. Really, that's the heart of, that, of, the, of every temptation uh, in, in those thoughts I just shared with you, and that's, that's the heart of this temptation here is, is trusting God, believing in the goodness of God and believing in God's timing in God's ways, at their best. Believing that God knows your needs and he knows your desires and, and he cares for you, that Satan wants you to doubt that, yes? That's what he did to Eve, right? God, God doesn't love you. If he did, he'd let you eat from anything you want to eat from and he's doing it with Jesus. God, God loves you, really? He's let you go 40 days without eating. What, what, what kind of love is that? What kind of father is that? 
That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants to convince you that God doesn't care about you or your needs. He's too busy or whatever, or he's, he's selfish or doesn't like to give. He's not generous. He will try and convince you that God is out of touch with your desires and therefore just, just take things into your own hands. Satan's made a lot of headway here. And again, I want to be pointed with this. He's, he's made a lot of headway here, especially in the realm of sexual immorality. It's the year 2021. The sexual revolution has come. And casual sex is in. It's like good food, right? You enjoy it. That's what sex should be like. You enjoy it. It's not hurting anybody. It feels good. No need for the, that commitment and that love and that affection. just feels good. Right? That's the sexual revolution that we're living in. Or maybe we say, I'm only human after all. God knows I have needs. I need to do something. And it's not hurting anyone. It's consensual. We both enjoy it. But Scripture says what? Do not defile the marriage bed. Scripture teaches that uh, sex is God's best between a man and woman who are married. And sex is good within marriage. Sex is kind of like fire. You ever think about that? In my house, we have a wood stove, and it's, it's neat to build the fire, and you build that, sto- or that fire inside the stove, and it warms the house. Uh, it gives a nice glow in the house. It's, it's, it's relaxing just to sit and watch it, right? That's like sex within marriage. Sex outside of marriage is like fire outside that wood stove. It's dangerous. It destroys. It ruins. It devastates. God is not anti-sex. Sex is God's idea, but again, it's God's gift between a married man and woman. But Satan doesn't want you to think about that or know that. He just wants you to think, you have a desire. Take matters into your own hands. God doesn't care about you. God's a prude. God's anti-pleasure, whatever. Satan wants you to think that God's forgotten about you. He doesn't care about your desires. He wants you to be impatient, take things into your own hands. And, And again, that temptation of impatience, that one hits me. And in our growth groups this last week, uh, one of the questions was to share with your growth group uh, ways in which you are prone to temptation. And we all shared, and it was, it was a great time of fellowship, and I shared, actually I asked my wife what she thought I should share, uh, and, and she shared impatience uh, for, for me. Uh, and I'm not impatient with people, uh, but I'm very impatient when it comes to dreams and plans and ambitions and, and those, those kind of things. Uh, and maybe you can relate to that. If you have Amazon Prime, and it's supposed to be two-day shipping, but it ends up being three or four-day shipping. Does that drive anyone else nuts? <laughs> anyone else driven nuts by slow Wi-Fi? That, that's me. I'm living in the wrong part of the world with, with Wi-Fi. <laughs> Internet. Uh, but maybe your struggle is not impatience with plans, but your struggle is impatience with people. Maybe you finish people's sentences for them. You draw quick conclusions instead of really hearing what they're trying to say to you. Maybe you easily get irritated with people or the slightest interruption will set you off. You know, impatience is driven by the tyranny of self. Impatience is driven by the tyranny of our own agendas. Impatience is, quite frankly, selfish and unloving and basically saying, look, I'm more important than you and my plans or whatever is more important than you. 
So maybe, uh, like me, you need to go to God and repent and ask for his grace and his help and his mercy uh, to recalibrate and trust him and his timing and his ways and know that he knows your needs and your desires and, and, and those issues, and he's working on those for his glory and for your good, and you need to trust him and, and not take things in your own hands. You'd be like Jesus, who, though he hasn't eaten for 40 days, is starving, he still refuses to take things in his own hands. He says, no, I live by God's word, and it's better to be starving and in God's will than to fulfill my desires and be out of God's will. Man, that's powerful. And that's how Satan likes to tempt, number one. The second way how he likes to tempt is he wants you to worship anything but but God. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, we read this. The devil took Jesus up and showed, Matthew says, is actually a very high place, but the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. So there's the temptation. Jesus, if you'll but, but worship the devil, you can have it all. You'll have all the glory, all the authority, all the wealth, all the fame of all the nations. It's, it's right there, right now, for Jesus' taking. All Jesus has to do is renounce his allegiance to the Father and, and announce his allegiance to Satan, to bow down to him and worship him, to give the devil the honor and respect of worship that is due to him alone. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. That's why he falls. That's why he, he, he disobeys and falls from heaven. You might be wondering, though, how is this a temptation for Jesus? Again, you need to think in your mind Luke 3.22. Remember that phrase in Luke 3.22 where the Father says to the Son, You are my beloved Son. That is a direct quote, if you can remember, from Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And in Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, to be God's beloved son means you are the inheritor, you will inherit all the nations. So Jesus has already been promised all the nations. He's already been promised all their fame and all their wealth and all their whatever. He's been promised that by the Father. But here's how Satan's tempting. Satan is saying, you can have that right now, and you don't have to do that cross thing. That's what Satan's doing. He's offering the easy way out. He's saying, you can have all that right here, right now, you just don't, and you don't have to go on that cross. The cross before the crown is what we usually would like to say. We know that Jesus must suffer and die before the glory, but Satan is saying, all the glory, but no cross. The crown without the bitter cup of the cross. And obviously Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross because it means his destruction and it means our salvation. So in response, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 says, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now that's that's interesting. That's a very interesting verse to respond with. Because again, notice it says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan didn't say a word about serving. Right? Satan said, man, all, all those, the nations, all that can be yours right now in a moment. But Jesus knows that whatever you worship, you serve it. That's a key point. Whatever you worship, you serve. 
The object of desire determines your patterns of behavior. What you think you need, which is what you worship, that controls you. So if you think you need power and authority, it will control you and you'll try and get that any way that you can. Or if you think you need acceptance, it will control you and you become who you need to be to be accepted. Uh, if you desire worship, whatever you desire in worship, you will end up serving it. That's, that's the point of that verse. So you need to know this is a key tactic of Satan. Whenever you're being tempted to fall into sin, it's a question of worship. It's a question of who will I love more? Who will I worship more? Who will I serve? That's always the question. Temptation is about worship. The problem is we don't think about that when temptation comes. We're caught up in the moment. We need to take a step back and pray and think, no, this is about worship. Who am I going to worship here? Am I going to worship myself or am I going to worship the Father. And I think we would all know from Pastor Dan and his 38 years of ministry here that everyone worships something. And you would know that from the scriptures too, that everyone worships something. Life is meant to be revolving around God. He created us. He made us in his image. He sustains us. He gives us every breath that we breathe. All things are from him and through him and to him. To him belongs all the praise and the glory and honor forever and ever. Life is meant to be God-centered, but instead... If you remember the class that Wes was teaching a few weeks ago, Two Ways to Live, God is king, but we want to rip him off that throne and be what? Kings ourselves. There's two ways to live. Either God is king or I'm king. There's nowhere in between. And one leads to eternal ruin, and one leads to eternal salvation. But we, we want to be kings, and so we passionately pursue our own kingdoms, we're power-hungry, glory-hungry, fame-hungry. And so Satan's temptation for splendor and for all the, the fame and wealth and power of all the nations, that's without waiting, without the cross, that's pretty tempting. I mean, it is Father's Day, right? So Father's Day means I should be able to just sit back and relax and do nothing for the rest of the day and be handed on, handed on or waited on, served on hand to foot, right? Isn't that what Father's Day means? How's that for a worship disorder? We all worship something. And temptation pinpoints that. Temptation, you need to ask yourself, what am I worshiping? Who am I worshiping? God is to be king of my life. What are you worshiping? What I really want you to see there, too, is that you don't have an anger problem. You don't have an anxiety problem. You don't have a lust problem. You have a worship problem. It all comes back to worship. What are you worshiping that makes you so angry? What are you worshiping that makes you lust? What are you worshiping that gives you fear? What are you most afraid of losing? And if you lose that, if that gives you fear or anger, that's what you worship. And Satan's going to attack there. Whatever you worship, you will serve. Then notice... Jesus also knew that service to the Lord is true freedom, but service to Satan is terrible bondage. So Jesus is showing us here by his response, not just that you'll serve what you worship, but that what you ultimately worship and serve has an ending point, and the ending point will either be great suffering or glory. And Satan, what he wants to do is he wants to give you that glory now so you'll be ruined forever. 
And the way how God works is, yes, there's suffering now and here and now because of, of, of sin and the world in which we live and the foolish choices we make. And sometimes God in his grace just brings providential hardships into our life. Through those things, we will suffer, but in the end, we will reign with him forever and we'll sing the song that we sing all the time, when I see Jesus, it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. So Satan right now may be offering glory, but it ends in suffering. It ends in brokenness. It ends in addiction. It ends in abuse, sickness, and evil. Sin and Satan are horrible slave masters. It's destructive. So Satan is still working that way today, right? Give in and enjoy the pleasures of life. Give in and enjoy the, the pleasures of sex outside of marriage like all your friends are doing. Why, why deprive yourself? Life is short. This might be your only opportunity, right? But then he masks over the fact about venereal diseases and this thing called AIDS. And also just the shame and spiritual and emotional consequences of giving yourself to someone outside of God's designed for lifelong marriage. Or Satan will dangle before you the good feelings of drugs and getting drunk, and he hides the ruined lives of the drug addict or a drunkard on the streets. And of course, he especially hides the eternal wrath of God that is ours if we do not turn by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you seeing it? The way how Satan tempts, he wants you to worship anything but God. He really wants you to worship him, but if he can get you off God, that's a win for him. So you need to ask that question in the midst of temptation, what am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? The third way that Satan tempts is he encourages you to test God. So looking at verses 9 through 12, it says, Satan took Christ, or Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. So that's the third temptation. Jesus takes him to the, the wing or the pinnacle of the temple, which, by the way, is, is roughly 450 feet tall. That's, that's a dizzying height. Uh, I was curious, and I, I googled what's, what's the tallest roller coaster that's out there. It was something like 420 feet or something. So if you can just picture yourself looking up at the really high roller coasters. The temple is 450 feet high. And Satan brings Christ up there and says, jump, jump. Of course, Satan is getting smarter. Uh, he quotes scripture to Jesus. Uh, so he says, verse 10, Jesus twice has responded with, it is written. So now Satan's going to say what's written also. Verse 10, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan quotes scripture. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. I want to push the pause button there and just, just say something. Just because someone is able to open the scriptures and read a few verses does not mean they are speaking biblical truth. If you're watching something on TV or YouTube or social media and the guy strings together a few verses, it doesn't mean that it's biblical. That's why I encourage you often that just because I'm up here preaching and proclaiming God's word, it doesn't mean I'm being biblical or faithful. 
You guys need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who go to God's word and say, is he right? Is that true? Because this is the authority. And this can very easily be ripped out of context. And we're good at ripping it out of context. Satan's even better. But he's able to do it in such a way to slide it right by you. He knows the scripture better than I do. He knows it better than you do. So we need to hear that. That just because someone can, can string together some verses doesn't mean they're being biblical. And again, Satan is making headway here. Uh, if you're paying attention uh, to just the ongoing LGBTQ issue, uh, there are many who profess, profess faith in Christ uh, today uh, who would argue quite vehemently from the scriptures that God is actually pro-homosexuality. There are many making that argument. Many so-called Christians. Many who are using the scriptures to try and argue for it. In fact, here's an advertisement from a church called New Covenant Church of Atlanta that I just recently saw. And here, here was their big headline in the newspaper. Uh, it says, can you be a born-again, spirit-filled Christian and still be gay or lesbian? The answer is yes. Huge news, a huge ad in, in, a, in a very large newspaper. There's also a very popular author. You need to write his name down so you can avoid him. And if you know others who are reading him, you can help them and speak the truth and love them and work through them. His name is Matthew Vines. He's very popular. Uh, and he has argued much in everyday language, so he's compelling. And he uses a few verses here and there. But he's very twisty with his words uh, to, to argue for homosexuality being acceptable. So I share all that to say... Uh, just to see that just because someone uses the scriptures does not mean that they are speaking biblical truth. Don't fall for the rhetoric. Don't fall for the crafty revisions of God's word. Maybe the guy or gal is really, really passionate when they speak. It doesn't matter. What are they saying? Are they handling God's word faithfully? I just want to say clearly from the pulpit this morning that you are not born homosexual. There is no such thing as a gay gene. There hasn't been a single study that's come remotely close to proving that it's biologically determined. But people are falling for that a lot. And they're falling for people twisting God's word. And you may be thinking that, no doubt, if there's anyone online watching or someone who's LGBTQ uh, positive in, in favor of it, hearing what I'm saying, you probably think I'm the most unloving jerk in the world for saying everything I just said. And I want you to know the truth is, it couldn't be farther from the truth. But I'm saying what I say because I love God and his word and I love you. And I want homosexual sinners as well as heterosexual sinners to know the forgiveness and mercy that comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite the list. And it's not just singling out homosexual sinners, it's singling out heterosexual sinners, isn't it? See, the gospel is for sinners, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. Now look what 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, such were some of you, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So whether you're a homosexual sinner or a heterosexual sinner, Jesus saves sinners. He can redeem, he can transform any life situation for his praise, for his glory. So what's the temptation Satan throws at Jesus? Essentially it's this. He wants Jesus to test the Father's protection. He wants Jesus to test the Father's care. The temple is a picture of God's presence, right? God dwells where? Old Testament, New Testament, early times? He dwells in the temple. It's supposed to be a picture of God's presence. So here they are standing 450 feet above ground on the pinnacle of the temple where God the Father said to dwell. Satan says, go ahead, jump. God, God will protect those who are his. See, it's, it's in the scriptures. If you're God's son, you have nothing to worry about. Just trust God. Jump. He, he won't let you stumble. He won't let you fall. So Satan is tempting Jesus to test God the Father, to presume upon the Father. It, it, to say it this way, he's, he's tempting Jesus to act irresponsibly and expect God to bail him out. And so Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 in, in verse 12. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, the scriptures say God is to be trusted, not tested. <laughs> trusted, not tested. God has created this world with rules, and there's this thing called gravity. So if you go up 400 feet high and decide to jump, you're going to fall. And don't expect God to bail you out. Don't go stand in the middle of 131 or I-75 and say, well, God will protect me. That's presuming on God. That's testing God. You're not supposed to test him. You're supposed to trust him. It's no different than when people today will say, well, I would believe in God if he would suddenly rend the heavens and come down. Ever hear people say that? I, I would believe in God if, if he would miraculously heal so-and-so. Right now, right now, if he'll heal him right now, I'll believe in him. Ever hear that? That's testing God. There's other ways we do that. We perhaps go to him in prayer and ask him to give us health, but simultaneously we overeat and we fail to exercise or maybe we continue to smoke or do other things that are detrimental to our health. That's putting God to the test, right? You're acting irresponsibly and asking God to bail you out. Maybe you ask God to protect your children and help them to grow up in, in the Lord and to follow hard after him, but you never make any effort to open the scriptures with them or to pray with them or teach them the word of God like Proverbs 4 says. That's putting God to the test. Maybe you ask him to answer your questions uh, about your lives in general or questions about him, but you never open his word to see what his word actually says. That's putting him to the test. Maybe you ask God to keep you from sinful thoughts and attitudes and behaviors, but simultaneously you fill your minds with trash. That's putting him to the test. Maybe you ask God to provide for you financially. You're in a, a dire financial situation, but you simultaneously neglect to be good stewards of what he's given you, and you continue to overspend and fail to give back what he's commanded you to give. That's putting him to the test. You see? When you give in to temptation, when you act irresponsibly, and then expect God to protect you, that's putting him to the test. It's, it's, it's like this, this Bible down here. If, if, 
and I'm not going to do this literally, but if I was to, to stand here and just kind of slowly keep pushing that book, but I also ask God, Lord, don't let that fall off, right? But I keep pushing it, Lord, don't let that fall off. I keep pushing it. What's that doing? That's testing God. That's acting irresponsibly and expecting the Father to bail me out. And the crazy thing is, I encounter this quite often in counseling, is we get mad at God when he doesn't bail us out for acting irresponsibly. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled who are furious with God because they continue to act irresponsibly. They, sure, they prayed for God to do some things, but they continue to do what they were doing, and they're mad that God didn't do anything. Well, you're supposed to trust him, not test him. And praise God, he's gracious. And if you will come to him, he will give you the power and the strength to, to overcome whatever that situation is. But don't keep making unwise choices and continue living in sin and then expect to be delivered from them. That's putting God to the test. God is to be trusted, not tested. So how have I done? Have I, have I effectively stomped on everyone's toes this morning? Has, has the Spirit <laughs> convicted you? Because I'll tell you why. He was convicting me a great deal throughout the week as I studied and, and read and thought and prayed through these scriptures. <coughs> Satan's crafty. He's tricky. But his tactics, they're revealed in the scriptures so we can know how to overcome. And in light of verse 13... It says, and the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. We see that, yes, Jesus defeats Satan, and he sets the groundwork for the future where he'll ultimately crush him. But we see from verse 13 that Satan doesn't just give up. You can rebuff him, and sometimes we repel his temptations, and we think, I got that over. That's good. I came through that. I'm victorious. And sometimes we get on a spiritual high after that, too. And then here comes Satan, right? Because when are we prone? In times of spiritual prosperity. So Satan never gives up. He's always on the prowl. He's always seeking to devour, to destroy. He's always waiting for that moment when you are weakest or most vulnerable. So the question before us is, how can we be watchful? How can we overcome his temptations? Well, we just explained it this morning, right? How do you overcome his temptations? He's on the prowl. He wants to get you. How do you overcome him? Number one, like we talked about, you trust in God's goodness. You live by his word. You say, I would, I would rather die than defy his word. I would rather be hungry in the will of God than satisfied outside the will of God. God is good. He knows my desires. He knows my needs. He'll meet them if and when he needs to. And even if he doesn't, he's still good. He's still God. He reigns. He's glorious. I love him. I won't, I won't disobey him. That's number one. That's how we overcome his temptation. The second way that we talked about that you overcome his temptation is you worship God. You serve him. You don't take things into your own hands. You ask yourself, what am I worshiping? What am I wanting right now? And the third way is you don't put him to the test. You don't continue to live in sin and look for a bailout. I mean, I get it. That's kind of the American way, right? But that's not the Christian way. 